Welcome to the Student Ministry Podcast by Lifeway. I'm Ben Trueblood. And as always, producer Nathan, riding shotgun. Yeah, back again. Good to see you, man. Back again. Good to see you, too. Yeah. We are, and, uh, coming off some travel, uh, it's always good to be, we mentioned this, I know in the last, uh, the last episode that we did, uh, but I want to remind you just really quickly, it's always good to be out and doing what we call our essentials training events. Uh, we've been in Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama, and in the fall, Montana, uh, looking for some things in Idaho. So if you live out there, maybe that and in Southern California. So. Head to lifeway.com slash essentials and you can find out where we're going to be. We would love to meet up with you in person for a day of uh, student ministry training as connection and community and care as well. So take a look at that. Uh, We're going to jump right in today. Uh, I am thrilled to have our guest on the podcast. I'm going to introduce him to you really quickly and then our our conversation will begin. Uh, Dr. Brian Loritz, uh, demon from Liberty University, is the teaching pastor at Summit Church, award-winning author of seven books. He spent the bulk of his ministry serving and resourcing the multi-ethnic church, co-founded Fellowship Memphis in 2003, and serves as the president of the Kainos Movement, an organization committed to seeing the multi-ethnic church become the new normal. His ministry takes him across the globe annually as he speaks at conferences, churches, retreats. Dr. Loritz has been a featured speaker for Catalyst and the Global Leadership Summit. Currently serves on the board of Biola University. He's a regular visiting professor at Grimke Seminary. He's also the vice president of Regions for the SEND Network. Husband of Corey, father of Quentin, Miles, and Jaden. Dr. Loritz, thank you so much for being on today. We really appreciate you carving out the time. Well, Ben, it's it's my joy. I'm glad to have been invited. Well, I uh, I want to start at the beginning here. Um, I mentioned to you, I've read some of your stuff and have followed you for a while and just really appreciate uh, the way that you approach things. Um, and I wanted to have this conversation just people to get to know you a little bit. I'll admit selfishly for me to get to spend a little time with you and for me to get to know you a little bit, uh, through this environment. Um, but I want to go back, uh, towards the beginning of life because I know you come from a ministry family at some point along the way that enters in. And, uh, I, I'm a big believer in the, our experiences growing up, the things that we, that we go through, that we walk through, that our, our parents bring into the picture, family baggage, all of that creates a filter by which we see the world. And, uh, and then we have to navigate that. So I would love to go back to the beginning and you introduce us to young Dr. Loritz. Yeah. So I am extremely blessed that in the uh, providence of God, I would, um, be born into the home of two parents who just, uh, incredibly love Jesus and have given given their lives to taking the Great Commission seriously. Um, my folks, we started out, I was born in uh, the Philadelphia area uh, back in the early 70s. Um, from there, uh, dad decided to uh, embrace the call to church planting, and he planted a church in Dallas, Texas, so we spent some years there. Uh, actually, him and a buddy of his, a guy by the name of Tony Evans, uh, co-founded uh, Oakleaf Bible Fellowship uh, together. Uh, and then uh, a little bit later, we moved to Atlanta, and uh, that's where my parents came on staff with an organization formerly known as Camp Crusade for Christ, uh, now known yeah. as Crew. 
my father led me to faith in Jesus Christ, uh, lived out uh, before me what an authentic, intimate relationship with Christ looks like. He was my first Old Testament professor, New Testament professor. We had a standing <laughs> kind of uh, weekly breakfast right before school uh, at the at the local Shoney's, which is a big deal down south back then. And uh, I remember him just walking me through how to share my faith and then going, okay, you got it. I was like, yeah. And then he goes, now watch me do it. Wow. So and just just pretty remarkable along that along those lines for the longest, I just thought my upbringing was just normal that everybody had that. And uh, then you start to get a little older and looking around and just realize how different and valuable and precious that is. My folks will celebrate 52 years of marriage uh, here uh, in a couple of months. Um, I then uh, long story short, but uh, just acknowledge uh, the call of God on my life to preach the word. When I'm 17, I go off to Bible College, Philadelphia College of Bible up in the Northeast and um, go there. And and that was a wonderful time. Uh, painful experiences uh, there. Uh, that was mm-hmm. kind of my first brush with fundamentalism, legalism, like we couldn't dance. Uh, if you got married during the semester, you couldn't have dancing at your reception. Uh, you couldn't go to the movie theater, but you could rent a rated R movie from Blockbuster. Most of y'all have no idea what okay. Blockbuster video is. Couldn't play cards. <laughs> I mean, it was just, That's it right. was just kind of all that stuff. Uh, and then on top of that, yeah. you know, I experienced some racism from some of my colleagues, which really kind of set me in a, emotional and spiritual tailspin, but I'm just a big believer. I think it's Rick Warren who said it, that oftentimes our purpose and our passion come out of our pain. And um, that Mm. just kind of set the foundation for some things that would ultimately become my commitment to uh, the multi-ethnic church, moved to California, worked at a large black church there, uh, pastored by my godfather, met my wife there, uh, ended up going to Talbot School of Theology, uh, and then spring of 1998, just my life got turned upside down in a really good way. Uh, left the black church, went on, uh, on staff at a large white church called, uh, Lake Avenue Church. And those people just really loved me well. It was a place of great healing. Um, and then later on just kind of came this passion to go, Hey, why is it the black church or the white church? Why is this, why, why is the church kind of this, homogenous thing. And uh, so I just felt like instead of pointing out the problems, I needed to be a part of the solution. And that led us to plan to church in Memphis, Tennessee in 2003. So uh, that's kind of uh, uh, the blinkest version uh, of my life uh, up until that point. So, (laughs) yeah. So you, you had the experience of intentional fatherhood discipleship, like, yep. Shoney's, I'm going to teach you how to share your faith. We're going to walk through theology. That's powerful. I'm, I'm so encouraged. I, I had, I would have a, I don't think to, I would, I would articulate it to that level, but also had a dad who was very spiritually invested, purposeful, uh, with me along the way. Um, so I'm, I'm thankful for that. And like you found out later in life, oh, I've not everybody, has that. And yep. for me, there was a little bit of maybe I should have valued that more when <laughs> when I was in the house yeah. than I actually yeah. than I actually did. Well, to be honest so with you, that's, grew that's up, a preacher's kid. Yeah, that's really why I wrote the book, The Dad Difference. And 
the dad difference really mm-hmm. has nothing to do with me as a father, but it's really a hat tip to how my father raised me and my siblings and lessons that I learned there in an attempt to equip other dads to do what I think my dad did well. And that is he was just intentional. So, yeah. In your uh, experiences in churches, most of our audience uh, for the podcast would be youth pastors, youth workers. Um, and many times they, their ministry is comprised of people who have a more a stable home life. Maybe dad is similar to ours and that takes a spiritual investment as a priority into their kids. But they would also have many families that they serve and, and pastor who mom isn't at home or dad isn't at home or divorced families or raised by a, a guardian or caregiver runs the gamut of, of situations that exist in student ministry. And we talk a lot about ministering to parents and helping parents be a spiritual investment to their kids. And one of the things that we also talk about in that conversation, and I'd love to get your kind of take on this while we talk about ministry to parents and helping parents disciple their children, what about Homes where the parents aren't interested in that. What about homes where mom or dad aren't interested in discipling their kids? How would you say the church can come alongside that student, that teenager in moments like that to, to continue to help them grow, maybe be a missionary in their own home? How does the church kind of step in in that moment? Yeah, man. Um, I, I think I think there's a couple layers to your question. In my experience, um, you know, a couple years ago, there was some data that came out that pretty much said less than one percent of all Christians have actually made a disciple. And in my experience, I, I don't I don't think it's because a professing Christian would say I'm not interested. I think they would say I just don't know how to do that. Right. Like if you could just give me a framework, um, if you could just equip me, I I have to believe that every professing Christian would would at least make an attempt at it. Right. So I I think that's that's a commentary on the Church of Jesus Christ that we as leaders just have to, to own, that we just haven't done a good job with that. So I think I think that's one layer to the question. And that is, if I ever had somebody say to me, oh, I'm not interested, then I'd have to go, are you really a believer, right? But I don't think they're going, I'm not interested. I think they're going, I don't feel confident. Like, I don't know what that is and how to do that, right? So that's one layer. Yeah. I think the other layer, so this is on the negative side of things. I think the other layer is we just, the magnitude of, um, athletics and activities, um, that really poses a sincere threat to the discipleship and spiritual formation of our kids. And it's not, it's not so much athletics and activities as much as it is, um, the success idol that parents have Mm -hmm. for their kids. And man, my kids got to get that scholarship and, you know, the best opportunity for them is to be on that travel club thing. And okay, we do the travel club thing. That's then going to take us out of church. I want to be careful not to get legalistic about this, right? Uh, I, I've got to, 
My, my youngest son was a great ball player. You know, Rasheed Wallace had him on his EYBL club. One one spring tournament season, my son flew about 50,000 miles. We understand that life, wow. and we had to get creative, yeah. right? So we did a Thursday night service, and we were like, you're going to Thursday night service because we understand the reality of weekends. But I'm just this little subculture that's that's infused with a success idol has now kind of demoted the discipleship of our kids way past the outer banks. And then we wake up one day and we wonder why our 25 year old son or daughter doesn't go to church. It's kind of we kind of modeled that for them in many cases. So I think we as parents, that's just, I know that's a hard word, but if you're talking about the discipleship of your kids, that's what we have to really own. Lucky for me and my folks, I wasn't that athletically great and AAU wasn't (laughs) that big of a deal when I was coming up. So it's a different era. So, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned, excuse me, you mentioned uh, spring of 98. That's something really significant uh, happened to you that was a time of healing that kind of shaped where you would launch from there. I'd love to hear you go in, more into detail about what what that was and how that kind of set your future path. Yeah, spring of 98, I was in my mid-20s going and blowing, finishing up uh, a seminary. I was on staff at my godfather's church. It's about a 13,000-person church in Inglewood, California, black church. I just always assumed uh, I would be there, or if I left... Uh, it would be to join another uh, black church, go on staff, get installed as pastor, fight some deacons. You know what I'm saying? Transition this thing uh, <laughs> along. I, that, that was just kind of the back of my mind assumption. And then a couple of things happened. Uh, one is I met and fell in love with a woman who's now my wife, uh, who is not African-American. She was like one of three uh, non-black women at the church. I'd always assumed I'd marry a, a black woman. So I'm like, man, this is weird. Um, didn't see this one coming. And then the other thing was this, uh, white church in Pasadena just came calling. And the more I got in that process, the more God made it absolutely clear that was his next assignment for my life. And if, if Mm -hmm. I don't go there, I don't think I ever end up in the multi-ethnic church because he really did some things there to not only bring healing to me, just the way those people loved me. But in also clarifying God's call for my life, uh, which was incredibly, incredibly huge for me. So that's what happened, really. Both of those events happened within a four or five month span uh, uh, in the opening part of 1998. Okay. Now, when you say, and and then you planted in Memphis directly from Pasadena? No, I didn't. So we took a pit stop. Uh, I was a young adults pastor at a church in Charlotte. Um, and again, what's happening to me is now I'm starting to do itinerant ministry. I'm starting to get on planes, speaking at other places. And I'm looking out and I'm like, why is this audience homogenous? Why is it all black? Why is it all white? I remember one time, uh, same Christian organization was doing two conferences at the same time. And I got invited to speak at both of them. One was all white. One was all black. And I kind of felt like Nehemiah just going, man, there's a hole in the wall here. Like There's a glaring hole in the wall. And remember, this is the late 90s, early 2000s. 
no one's really talking about multi-ethnic. There's hardly anything written. There's hardly any churches. I mean, I can just think of one. There's Brooklyn Tabernacle. I'm sure there was more than that. Uh, but this was not really a conversation. Uh, I had no framework for church planting uh, up until then. Uh, mm-hmm. Church planting for me was uh, a group of people at Mount Zion get sideways with each other. One group leaves. They start greater Mount Zion down the road. Like that was kind <laughs> of my, my paradigm. It was church splitting, not church planting. Um, and yeah. so it finally reached a point where I was just like, you know what, what I'm dreaming of, I don't really see any models for. I think I'm going to have to trust God to just start a work and pray that mm. God builds it up from the ground up. And we wanted to go to the toughest place in the nation, uh, urban center to do a gospel centered disciple making multi-ethnic church using the 2000 census as our guide. The most diverse church in an er- the, the most diverse city um, along black white lines uh, was Memphis, Tennessee, and that's really how we ended up. I'd never even been to Memphis before we planted. So, yeah. Now, when I think I would love to get your your definition of multi ethnic church. I, it sounds self explanatory, but I think it would be helpful just to stop real quick and say. Hey, this is when I say multi-ethnic church, this is this is what we're aiming at. When you go into a city to say, I'm going to plant a church and pray that God makes it this. So the definition, by the way, your your question is brilliant, uh, honestly, because so many people just kind of use that phrase flippantly um, where it's sociologists actually have it down to an exact science. Now, I didn't know this exact science before I walked into Memphis. Right. But. Uh, sociologists tell us a multi-ethnic church uh, is a church that meets what they call the 80-20 rule. And in essence, what that is saying is um, no one ethnic group in the church makes up more than 80% of the whole, right? So if your church is 100-something and you're 82 Asian and 18 other, you're not considered multi-ethnic, right? Now, even those numbers, 80-20, are not haphazard. Uh, sociologists say 20% is the minimal threshold uh, in which a person feels heard, valued, and, ext- and esteemed. So, so let's, to help you get, get your mm. arms around this, let's, let's not use ethnicity, let's use age. So imagine you walk into a church for the first time and you're standing in the back trying to figure out where you're going to sit. And let's say of the 100 people in the room, man, 30 of them are college students or they look like college students, something in your mind just off the eye test is going to say, this is a young church, right? Or this is a multi-generational church. So same thing with that 80-20 rule. There's something psychologically that shifts for us. When I'm in in the back of a church trying to figure out where I'm going to sit, and the church meets the 80-20 rule, where I go, man, this, this space is multi-ethnic. That's why they use those numbers. That's an incredibly helpful definition uh, for multi-ethnic. Uh, when you started this work in Memphis, um, I'm, I don't see a lot of examples of it around. We're going to move to Memphis because of the data. We want to go to a hard place. And we're going to pray that that God builds a multi-ethnic church here. When you started that work, 
what were some of the barriers, some of the things that you immediately, because I can only imagine gung ho, we've moved, we're here, we're going to get this thing started. But there were no doubts and barriers along the way. What were some of the first things that you ran into as you were seeking to build a multi-ethnic church? Well, let me surprise you because in a lot of ways, it was um, it, it wasn't as difficult as I thought initially when we're just kind of having interest meetings. And a lot of that is just because we're in Memphis. Uh, if you know anything about the culture of Memphis, it feels like Memphis to this day feels like people took a photo of the city on April 4th, 1968, the day Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And that that is the lens through which to this day people still see Memphis. So there mm. is this incredible racial thing that you feel. You know, Tim Keller talks about um, whenever you walk into a city to do ministry, to plant a church, whatever. Uh, you have to be able to identify the unique idols of that city. And I really do believe that. I, I believe that each kind of place has its unique thing. And for Memphis, it's got an extra dose of that race thing. Now, the reason why I say is we're having our interest meeting just saying, hey, we're casting a vision for this. It wasn't hard for us to rally people together to get it going is because because of its legacy of racism, um, it, it has induced a lot of white guilt. And so Memphis mm. is one of the most philanthropic cities. There's just this thing in which, man, we got to do something, right? It, it, it doesn't mean necessarily that people are genuine about it. I think there's a lot of, we got to change our image, which isn't addressing the problem, right? And so again, for us mm -hmm. to rally the troops, we had no problem getting 20-something-year-old whites to come, right? We had a problem getting their parents to come. That's a different story. And we had a real problem getting minorities, specifically African-Americans, to come. Um, because the average black person, I heard Eric Mason say this the other night at the event I was at with him, um, and it really is true, the average black person in America has been discipled to not trust white people. So that was our challenge, right, is how do we create an environment where we're not just sitting next to each other uh, in a sanctuary, but we're now sitting around a table with one another doing life. And that is why it's very important for me to say this. The end zone for me when I think of multi-ethnic churches isn't diversity. Right. So I can just talk about the race component. The end zone is unity. Those two things aren't the same. You can be ethnically diverse, but not ethnically unified. Jesus's prayer in John mm. 17 wasn't for diversity. It was for unity. That's what we yeah. want. So. I think uh, I'm certainly not going to speak for all, but I think what you articulated just now is as the end zone being unity not just looking out at a church and seeing different faces, but actually that we are going beyond associating together and actually participating in the gospel. 
I think many stop at the goal of diversity. They stop short of the end zone that you just described. And my guess is because that's where the hard work really begins. Absolutely. 100%. You'll be amazed. There are a lot of multi-ethnic churches that are like the NBA all-star game, right? Where you get people from various teams, they show up for the event, they play in the event, but when the event's over, they go back to their own teams. And that's a lot of Mm. multi-ethnic churches where we show up together for this thing called Sunday morning worship or Saturday night, whatever your tradition may be. Um, But there's, again, not this real exchange. And so I think, and I, I just wrote a book on this. It's 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 coming out later this year. I think I think what what 2016 to 2020 did, which is which is I think in my lifetime the most divisive period of time in my life when we talk about the Church of Jesus Christ. I think what happened during that that period is it exposed the church, even though now this is an interesting statistic. From 1998, um, and this, the data came out in January 2020, the Evangelical Church in America grew. It tripled. The Evangelical Multi-Ethnic Church, I should say, tripled from 7% in 1998 to 22% in 2020. Right Now, I want to look at the latest data and see what happened post-George Floyd, post-the Trump administration, right. post-all of that stuff. But what it revealed, uh, what, what I think what we've just went through has revealed is, man, we, we didn't really relationally um, get into each other's lives and really get this unity thing. I think we had a facade, a veneer of unity. But when the trauma happened, it's like the way we talked about each other or talked past each other, I'm like, man, I, I don't think we ever really had a real relationship mm-hmm. with each other. It bro- it broke the facade and, and showed, Oh, the unity hasn't happened in some, in That's some right. places. That's right. Um, I have so many questions. I've <laughs> been taking notes. So I want to, I want to kind of dive in. I want to know how you specifically attacked the unity versus just diversity as you built a church. And there's there, I think there is a uniqueness in starting a church and saying this, these are going to be our values from the word go. And then, uh, so comparing that to an older, more established church that looks out and says, we really don't reflect our community how do we now begin this process? So I want to start with how you, from from the word go, began to attack that greater than diversity. We've got to get to unity piece. So in general, uh, there's a couple layers here. One is I don't think every church should be multi-ethnic. So if you're listening to this, I, I don't I don't want anybody to feel like this is this is what I have to do. I think geography dictates all of that. I don't think every church should be multi-ethnic. I do think every church should reflect its community. Now, here's the problem. Dr. Corey Edwards, um, Jesus-loving associate professor of sociology at Ohio State University, she says the average community that a church sits in 
is 10 times more diverse than the church and the average schools in the community that a church sits in are 20 times more diverse than the church. So missiologically as an average, yeah, we're failing. So even, even the church I serve Mm. now, you know, we've got 14 campuses all across the Raleigh Durham area, the triangle. But so when, when I get, when I get some of my older, some of our older white members who say, why are we making a big deal out of uh, ethnic unity and getting more people in? Here's what I always tell them. Look, our mission field is 56% white, 44% people of color. Our church is about 83% white, 17% people of color. We, we don't look like our mission field. So all we want is to look like our mission field. And typically people get it because now now I'm taking it out of an ideological box. I'm taking it out of a political box and I'm just putting it in a missional box, right? Right. So the starting point is, man, what does my mission field look like? And if your mission field is multi-ethnic, then you should go after that as, as as proper stewardship in that. Now, the direct answer to your question as far as how we get after ethnic unity, the secret sauce to all this is relationship. The tagline we would always use is proximity creates empathy, right? Mm. I can always tell by how a person talks about ethnically different people, whether or not they have authentic relationships with the ethnically other, right? It doesn't mean that you change your core convictions, uh, but man, there's just a softening that happens, uh, there's just a sensitivity and empathy that happens when I've got deep, authentic friendships with people who not only look different look differently than me, but who vote differently than me, right? Um, and so we get into our little incestuous tribes, and now, now instead of um, filtering uh, media outlets through my Bible, I'm, I'm filtering my Bible through media outlets. And now I'm speaking of yeah. them, you know, uh, because that's how Fox News has shaped me or MSNBC or CNN. Um, when at the end of the day, we just need to sit at the table with one another. I'll say this last thing. I read a book some years ago that just really transformed me along these lines. It's called Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus. And uh, the long and short of it is Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his early 20s came over to Harlem. He was doing a fellowship at Union Seminary, which is a part of Columbia University. And he joined an all-black church, the Abyssinian Baptist Church. It's a church that's still around today. That phrase, cheap grace, Bonhoeffer didn't come up with it. He got it from his black pastor. He fell in love with Negro spirituals. He taught Sunday school there. He, he made friends with a guy named Albert Fisher. Albert told Bonhoeffer, hey, man, why don't you get on a train with me? Let's go to the Jim Crow South. Bonhoeffer goes to the Jim Crow South, blows his mind. Here's the bottom line. Bonhoeffer says, man, I don't go back to Germany to stand up for the Jews if I don't first take a pit stop at this black church and see the gospel preached to the oppressed. What he's saying in essence mm. is what changed me was relationships. So... Um, yeah. that's the secret sauce as far as unity goes. Just get into proximity with people who see it differently than you. When, when I think 
many people think of, of church, the feeling of home, like it's a place where I belong or, or should be, uh, should be a place where I belong am accepted and am connected with other people. Uh, and you quoted her earlier. And I think what the quote that I'm about to ask you about may be from the same person. Um, but you talked in, in your book about white evangelicalism has always treated us black people uh, like a guest in their house. And because of that, minorities never truly feel at home. And that's something that really, really stuck out to me. Um, and I would love to hear you kind of ref reflect on that quote. And I, I know that the answer is relationships is, is proximity, all of those things that you just mentioned. But I would love to hear you again, just I know you did in the book, but just respond and, and reflect on that quote and the fact that how a guest even an honored guest is different than being invited into the, the home. Yeah. So, you know, just a quick history lesson. Um, you know, this, this subject of unfortunately Christianity, the church and race in an American context kind of all got woven together in very unfortunate ways. Um, and so when we talk about the, the forefathers, the, um, the ancestors of modern day evangelicals, we, we have to trace it back to the Puritans, right? And look, I've read Puritan books. Uh, their, their books have a unique way of inflaming the soul. They had a wonderful soteriology, doctrine of salvation. They just had a horrible anthropology doctrine of humanity mm. right and so you know you, you kind of go at jonathan edwards uh owning a slave you're like bro what are you thinking or cotton mather when he is negotiating uh his pastoral package at his new church in the negotiate in the negotiations he decides to have a slave put into his package as part of his compensation right and you go, yeah. what are you thinking? Now, I'm not going cancel culture on them. I'm not going cancel culture on them at, at all. You know, I think every generation, and I even think this about our generation, like I think every generation we're going to stand before God and God's going to be like, what were you thinking, right? And I wonder what that'll be <laughs> for our generation, right? Like, where did you miss this? And that'd be a fun conversation to have, uh, to have at some point. The only one, by the way, of that ilk, that I would definitively say you should think twice before you quote this guy um, is George Whitfield. There's mm -hmm. a difference between owning a slave and successfully lobbying for slavery. So George Whitfield, one of the greatest, most revered evangelical preachers of his day, uh, is has a passion for orphans. Amen. <laughs> it's James chapter one. It's the Bible. Amen. The problem was he needed an economic system to fund his orphanage, and he wanted to use the plantation model, and he wanted to base it in Georgia. But at the time, Georgia, it, it made slavery illegal. So for years, he lobbied the trustee, General James uh, Ogletree, Oglethorpe, I forget his last name. And finally, Georgia legalized slavery in large part 
because of this evangelical preacher, George Whitfield, right? And so I think you should think twice before you quote Whitfield. But here's, here's what I'm saying. These were all uh, what we would today call evangelicals, right? And so they're laying a foundation for what church looks like. Fast forward to the late 1700s, St. George's uh, Methodist Church there in Philadelphia. Uh, a black man has the audacity to, to pray in the whites-only section of the church. By the way, if you know your church history in America, it was pretty common that churches were multi-ethnic back then. There was no such thing as uh, as unity, though, because blacks had to sit, uh, if there was a balcony, up in the balcony or off in the back. So black men has the audacity to pray in the whites-only section of the church. They don't wait for him to finish his prayers. They pick him up off his knees. They throw him out. Two weeks later, um, all the blacks leave the church. Uh, they go to a blacksmith store. They buy the store. And that is the first beginnings of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, which is the first historically black denomination to be started in our nation. And it starts, and this is a hard thing to say, the black church only exists because the white church failed to be the church. Had our white brothers and sisters really had a biblical vision for church, right? And it goes back to the book of Acts. You look at Paul. Whenever Paul walks into the city, two questions. Where's the synagogue? I want to preach Christ to the Jews. And then where the Gentiles hang out? I want to preach Christ to the Gentiles. The foundations of the church are multi-ethnic. No way you can read Acts and not come away with that. I mean, shoot, Acts 16 and Philippi, yeah. the church starts with a rich woman named Lydia, uh, a blue collar, uh, uh, a jailer, uh, and then this slave girl, right? I mean, th those are your first members of the church. And then somehow in America, we just totally get it right. And to the point where people think the multi-ethnic church is a new 21st century American phenomenon when it's a first century foundational reality <laughs> of the church. We've just drifted that far from it. Yeah. So... That's right. So in that, I would love to hear your thoughts on the get feeling like a guest and feeling like not welcome, because I know there are, I've had these conversations with student pastors. I've had them with church leaders. Hey, we want to reflect our community more it doesn't seem to be happening. And when I read this, my life, well, well that's why. That we're not getting minority groups to, to cross from our, from our actions, whatever, whatever they are in different contexts and situations in the church, in different churches, we're not able to, to help people move from feeling like a guest to feeling like, this is our home together. So how would you tell church leaders who are, who would be at, and we, or your church, we have about 83% to 17%. How, how would you advise moving people to, this is home for all of us. All right. There's, there's three core things. And then there's a major issue undergirding at least two of those. Um, there's three boxes you have to check. Number one is the location box, right? Does, and we talked about this, does my location even lend itself for it, right? Um, right. And 
look, if you're planting a church in Beverly Hills, you're probably not going to be multi-ethnic, right? That's fine. That's fine. Uh, the, the second box is leadership, right? So, you know, that's Acts 13. That's, that's the church of, um, of, of Antioch, multi-ethnic leadership. Um, and so once I have location figured out, I, I want to, I want to begin to pray that God would send us leaders, that God would raise up leaders that match the significant people groups in my mission field, right? That's a huge mm-hmm. prayer. Leadership is a big deal. Um, and then the third thing I would say, um, so, so number two and number three are really culture making items that are important for a multi-ethnic church. Uh, number two is leadership. Number three is music. Music. Music is a huge okay. culture making deal that you're going to have to have some diverse faces and voices. Now, undergirding, especially number two, but I would also say number three is you're going to have to wrestle with, and this is where, this is where most conversations stall out. I can't tell you how many times I've made easy money of churches, put me on a plane to consult. And I just knew they weren't going to do the hard thing. So (laughs) a lot of leaders are interested. It's biblical. They get up. It's authentic but they haven't looked at the price tag. There's a price tag here and it's going to cost a lot. And and one of the costly items here is power. Power. The definition of a token is a face without a voice. It's the definition of a token. Mm. Once you go down this avenue, you have to be willing to now begin to divest yourself of power, to share power with other people. So for example, the church that I'm at now, granted we've got 14 campuses, but I preach about 30 times a year, right? Uh, I'm teaching pastor. There's a white senior pastor that takes a lot of humility for this white senior pastor to say, Hey, I'm used to being on video every week to everybody, but there's a vision here. We're not meeting our mission field. I'm going to empower this person who looks like so many people in our mission field and I'm gonna I'm gonna give it away. See, that's that's Philippians chapter two. That's this whole idea, this kenosis passage of Jesus, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Right? He mm-hmm. he gave it away um, so that uh, we could have an opportunity for salvation. I think that's just what re- redemptive leadership is. Uh, it's giving it away for the cause of mission, for the glory of God, and for the benefit of others. And if you're not willing to do that, um, I think what you'll do is you'll you'll produce at best the most damaging kind of multi-ethnic church, the most damaging kind of church, and that is an assimilated multi-ethnic church where you have different ethnicities, but there's a dominant culture, Right. And that's where you get people feeling like guests is pretty much you're saying we want to go in this direction, but I'm not going to give up power. We like music a certain way. We like the preaching and leadership a certain way. And it takes a lot of humility to be able to give it away. I, I think when you do that. So, so, so here's the last thing I'll say. I want to give you Bible here. Acts 15 is the first church council that's ever created. 
Why do they have the church council? Because Paul is planting all these multi-ethnic churches and all these Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. Then the Judaizers, these Jewish leaders are coming behind Paul telling these new Gentile converts that in order to be saved, you got to be circumcised. Paul says, this is driving me nuts. we got to call a church council. So he gets the, the Jewish leaders of the church together and go, what do we do? And in essence, here's what they're saying. Here's what, here's what their verdict is. In the church of Jesus Christ, there is no ethnic home team. You don't have to be Jewish to be saved. Now, just think about that for a minute. If you're going to do a multi-ethnic church, there should be no dominant culture there. Right? That's a huge deal. And so when you do that constant work, it's like cutting the grass, by the way. It's constant. It's constant. But when you do that work, now you create an environment where no one's welcomed because it's all home for us. <laughs> it's all home. Mm. That's good. That's good. And so you have the look of diversity, but still a homogenous expression of what church and worship and, and culture is. Yeah. I wrote a whole book on this right color, wrong culture where, where I try to tease out the difference between ethnicity and culture. Right. Um, Culture includes things like language. It includes things like economics. So, for example, any sociologist will tell you that it's easier to get middle-class blacks and middle-class whites together than it is to get rich whites with poor whites. Does that make sense? The culture barrier is huge. Now, that's the beauty of Acts 2. Because Acts 2 is multi-ethnic monoculture. Excuse me, multi-ethnic multicultural. They're selling their possessions and giving to people as they had need, which means there's those who have the extra lake house to sell, and there's those who have no house, and they're all together. So, yeah. Yeah. I think this would be a good a good point to stop and define a couple of terms again, because I think you do a really good job of this, uh, is defining what white evangelicalism is and how that's different than white evangelicals right so white even the difference give some definition for white evangelicalism and then we'll, we'll we'll get to the difference in a moment yeah that's good so there's a basic grammar principle centered around this idea of etymology and really what etymology teaches us is that words evolve over time right um, so there was a point in time in which, uh, you know, to be called a fundamentalist was a good thing. It, it was a good thing. You believed in the fundamentals right. of the, of the faith, you know, um, uh, that early fundamentalist modernist co- uh, controversy that happened. Um, well then fundamentalists kind of morphed into this legalistic self-righteous, um, I don't go to movies, you know, I don't, you know, smoke or chew or date girls that do, uh, I, you know, <laughs> I don't do that sort of a thing. And so, you know, uh, I just remember Carl F.H. Henry, um, who's a early to mid 20th century writer, more mid 20th century writer. Um, he, he really popularizes the pejorative kind of nature of fundamentalists and really attacks them. 
Uh, and specifically, fundamentalists were attacked for their lack of involvement um, in what he calls the social justice movement or the civil rights movement, right? And so there just kind of became a thing to where, man, this, this word's been hijacked. We just got to change it. And so uh, fundamentalists kind of evolved into evangelical, right? And so the idea of evangelical, um, just to kind of make it accessible, is evangelicals kind of always believed in the authority of Scripture. They always had a high view of Scripture. Um, they all always believed in the, the necessity of mission, of sharing your faith, um, things of that nature, right? So that's, in that sense, it's good. I think it's now time to come up with another term because what has happened in recent memory is now evangelical has been kind of hijacked and now you've added this big political thing to it, right? So now yeah. evangelical means you vote a certain way. Right. So I, I just think we got to we got to come up with different language to kind of, you know, encapsulate yeah. and, and articulate that. So, look, by the definition of your say, Brian, do you have a high view of Scripture? I believe in the authority of Scripture. I believe in the inspiration of Scripture. I believe the infallibility. of Yes. Uh, yes. So I think I should be sharing my faith. Absolutely. I I try to as often as I can share the good news of Jesus Christ, right? I just, I believe in those core doctrines. So in that sense, I think evangelical is good. Um, and what I tried to say in the book is I'm not attacking white evangelicals. We need, we absolutely need white evangelicals. And let me just say this. I, I grieve. I wrote an article some years ago uh, in which I said uh, white is not a four letter word. I think it's become sport today to just pick on and make fun of white people. And that, that, that has become a pejorative thing. Um, and I think it shuts down conversation. I think it shuts down any attempt at ethnic unity. I think there's this white guilt thing that hovers over the air where our white brothers and sisters are afraid to chime in and really voice what they really think about things. Uh, if you were to follow my wife and I around for six months uh, and you noticed that I was the only one expressing my opinion, I was the only one giving pushback, she never expressed her opinion, she never gave pushback, you wouldn't conclude that we have a healthy relationship. A healthy relationship right. is where both people feel so safe and tethered to one another by love that that both sides are just free to express how they feel, right? I actually think ethnic unity looks like not just one side articulating how they feel, but the other side going, yeah, I actually, I actually voted for Trump and my 401k thanks me. <laughs> Boom, drop the mic. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, I think, I think that's health. I actually think that's health because there's just this high level of trust and we can just go there with one another. Yeah. Um, so we need, we need whites, we need evangelicals, even though I think we need to change the, the name. We need white evangelicals. White evangelicalism is a completely different thing. It's, it's right. this system that has been embedded in our nation that, that has a high degree of race involved in it. Um, and, and it really um, wants nothing to do with issues of racial justice. Um, 
it it kind of sees its way as the dominant way in every other kind of perspective, even within orthodoxy, has to bend and adjust to its norms. If if I'm coming across like I'm struggling to define it, it's because I am. And it's because I think it's so pervasive. It's like trying to describe water to a fish. It's just so. Mm. So l- let me give you this this analogy. Um, um, I, so w- whenever I teach, I used to teach this class called Preaching Reconciliation. First day of class, mostly whites in the room. Um, I would begin the first day of class by saying, "Hey, what's black theology?" And they would raise their hands and they chime in and they talk about liberation theology and. You know, they they would talk about, you know, different authors, writers, so and so. Okay. What's black preaching? And they'd chime in on that and you know, they we'd have a robust discussion. And then I'd go, What's white theology? What's white preaching? The room is silent because it's hard to give voice to what you've normalized and mainstreamed. Mm. Right? And so now I want them to really wrestle with these things. And because here's the reality, it's impossible to do theology completely divested of my gender. Right? I naturally see things as a man. Uh, it's, yeah. uh, it's impossible to do theology divested of my ethnicity. Here's what we bring all of our experiences to the text. So that's why I think theology should be done within community, right? Um, I, I, I was telling a group of uh, white evangelical leaders, uh, they were t- talking to me about, this, this, this is a good example, they were talking to me about complementarianism. I said, well, I think that's a middle-class white conversation. Never heard that term in the black church. I'm not talking about the concept, I'm talking about the actual term. It doesn't exist. You know what else I never heard in the black church? Never heard the phrase disqualified for for ministry. Hmm. Never heard that in the black church. I'm not saying those concepts are wrong. What I am saying is there are things that are unique to your culture that now you look at me and go, if I don't bend to that, that somehow I'm less than. Hmm. Which then leads to the lack of unity and the separation that is so difficult to overcome because it goes straight to that embedded embedded to use this example. What my experience is, is quote normal. And so the people around me have to bend to that experience. Absolutely. You know, um, so am I allowed to think differently than you? on lesser Mm. issues. So we're not talking about substitutionary atoning work of Christ. We're not talking about his deity. Right. We're talking about important, but non-essential items. Am I allowed to vote differently than you? Right. So I, 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 I think, I think here's, here's what drives me nuts. Most of my white evangelical friends who voted for Trump didn't love Trump. They weren't Trump fans. They love the platform. They, 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 they love kind of, they were driven by issues, by platform, not person, right? 
Am I allowed to say that in 2008, I was excited about Obama being president, right? From the historical position, even though there's nuance, even though I abhor abortion, I think it's evil, even though I disagree with some of the issues. Can you afford me the same nuance that you're asking from me when it comes to mm. Trump? Can you give me that same nuance? Most conservative right. white evangelicals can't can't do it. Just can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. So where do you think you have you did the church plant? You're involved in a church now that is seeking to become a multi-ethnic church more so where we you've you've talked about the tumultuous nature of the last several years uh the divisiveness if i remember correctly you see it as the most divisive years that the church has had where do you think it goes i, I know you don't have <laughs> the power to see into the future but you have an incredible grasp on history which often helps us get a little bit of a picture into the future. So where do we go from here? Where does the church, where does the church go? If we do this one thing, we solve all our problems. Hmm. You ready? We got discipleship wrong here in the West. It's so individualized. We only think of discipleship in vertical terms. So when we talk about discipling someone, here's what we typically mean. I'm going to show you how to have a quiet time. Like most youth pastors think, think along these. I'm going to show you how to have a quiet time, show you how to read your Bible, show you how to pray, show you how to, you know, share your faith, show you how to maintain purity, like vertical. The problem with that is discipleship doesn't come on the scene in the West. It arises from the East. It's really, it's really Jewish. Um, in its foundations. And when a rabbi, and I get this from Ray Vanderlyn, a Jewish scholar, he's Gentile, but he's a Jewish scholar. When, when a rabbi would come knocking on your door, uh, it would typically be an invitation to lock arms with a group of people. Uh, and that would be a typical uh, 10 to 15 year process. Um, and if you look at how Jesus did discipleship, he put different people in a group, and they were not only discipled vertically, but but by very process, they were discipled horizontally into the new humanity. Um, that's kind of the same idea with Paul and the missionary teams that he establishes, the churches that he plants. They never viewed in the East discipleship as solely about you and God. It's also about how do I live that out in community and relationship with others. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I argue in my forthcoming book, it's called The Offensive Church, is that I argue for a robust discipleship mechanism where we are discipled both vertically and horizontally into relationships with others. Imagine if we're doing that, even the ethnically other. I mean, can you just imagine, you know, a small group? And there's um, Officer Darren and George Floyd in the same small group. Hmm. Can you can you just imagine uh, white police officers 
sitting in a small group um, with Latino gang members and they've just come to faith in Jesus Christ, right? Um, something's going to happen there, right? Um, there's, there's, I'm, I'm now going to come out from behind my stereotypes of you because now, like, I know you. You know what I'm saying? And this is a two-way street. Yeah. I used to think that to be wealthy and white was to be heartless until God just dropped some wealthy white people in my life and we start doing life together and rounds of golf and duck hunting and all this other. It totally changed my perspective because now I'm rubbing shoulders and doing life with these individuals. So I think when we talk about the 80-20 rule, that's not just for the sanctuary. That's also for the small groups. Like yeah. the quicker we can be strategic and who we put in the room together and learn from each other, I think I think that's going to help us. I'll use this word. It's a pejorative, but I, I, I use it in a very positive way. That's going to help us deconstruct all the racial cultural mess that Satan has used to wreak havoc on us. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you about uh, one, one more thing and it's going to, it's directly connected to relationships and doing life with people. So we'll stay on topic there, but it does leave the race conversation for just a moment because I've, I've used to try to talk to people about LGBTQ plus and relationships with that community. I've used the example of your personal story where your you and your wife befriended the lesbian couple. And I, I just, I thought that was a beautiful picture of what it looks like to both affirm the teaching of scripture and the love of a person and inviting them to be in life with you and in uh, and in your home. And because uh, there are people listening right now that haven't, that haven't, that don't know about this. So I would love for you to just tell that, tell that story uh, because I know, I know it's going to be helpful because I know that youth pastors are trying to teach teenagers how to have gospel relationships, both with the eth ethnically other and with those who are part of the LGBTQ community and, and how to do that very thing and how to love people, how to be with people and, and hold the truth of God's word at the same time. Great question. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's amazing. Um, the average person who shows up at our church, um, you know, they, they, they Google diverse church and of course, <laughs> um, diversity now means a whole lot of different things. And, so in this work, um, you know, I've just realized, especially in today's culture, I don't know how you disciple people without giving them a winsome, faithful, biblical framework for how to engage our friends in that community. Um, mm -hmm. Caleb Kaltenbach, who I have found to be a huge help uh, towards this, um, he, he talks about the the tension uh, of grace and truth. You know, when John writes of Jesus, we saw a man full of grace and truth. And he uses a rubber band analogy for this that I just think 
every time I teach on this, I, I think it's a helpful analogy. So imagine you've got a rubber band and, you know, if you just hold it by one end, by either end, there's no power there. It's just dangling. It's limp. The real power of the rubber band is when you, when you hold grace and truth in tension. That's, that's the, the power there. And so when we talk about a framework for faithful, winsome engagement, it's that grace and truth. And I love the order. Uh, John says, when I saw Jesus, all men full of grace and truth. My experience tells me that oftentimes people won't hear truth until they first experience grace. Right. So again, this is just, this is just the framework that we just try to live into. And so when we got to the Bay area, uh, which, you know, if you just study historically, especially the Castro district, that's where the movement happens. Uh, and so it's all over the place. Um, our son, you know, on his AAU team, uh, my son's the two guard, the point guard, two moms, lesbian couple. We, we ended up reaching out to them. Here's another important piece when we talk about framework, not just the grace truth. There's a woman by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. Um, you should read her work. Um, she used to be in that lifestyle. Uh, then she got saved. She loves Jesus, married kids, the whole nine out. She says what, what opened up the pathway for her to hear the gospel and she says what's absolutely essential to reaching our friends in, in, in that community is hospitality, right? Mm. Um, and here's where the parallel is to, to race. It, the most important thing I can tell you is right now, the, the way you deal with the race issue, the way that you deal with the LGBTQ plus issue is not, you don't enter through the ideological door. You enter through the relational door. The moment we start getting into ideology and critical race theory and woke and, you know, can you be born that way? Can you not be born that way? I mean, we lose. We lose. Um, now, we'll, we, we might need to circle back and talk about those things, but, but my first move is relational. My first move. And so we invited this couple over to the house to eat and we're spending all kinds of time. They invite us over to their home and Every time we go over there for one of their parties, just on the eye test, we're the only heterosexual people in the joint, right? Um, but we're just trying to live this thing out. Um, and then we had those those truth moments where months later, after all these relational investments, they then asked me, you know, can I do their renewing of the vow ceremony? You know, they've been married and... I just, okay, let's have the conversation. You know I love you. Like, you've been over to my house for the barbecue, but I can't do it, and here's why. And the relationship is preserved because they know I love them. They now have come to faith in Jesus Christ. I baptized their son, right? And what saved them wasn't a position paper. What saved them wasn't my thoughts on whether or not you can be born that way. What saved them is just logging a lot of hours, loving people, and hearing their horrific stories, and yet just going, "I'm not going anywhere. I'm just, I'm, I'm embracing you." And so, yeah, that's it's it's a, a lot more complicated than that, but that's kind of the thirty-five thousand foot perspective. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to to walk through that a little bit because. I I do think it is a very very helpful snapshot uh, 
of what that can look like and what what is possible if if we allow and I love how you pointed out the order of grace and truth and my goodness we get that wrong a lot we yeah. we 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 default I think to the truth and then eventually we'll get to the grace and uh yeah and, and look and, and Jesus, here's the other thing Jesus embrace your away. embrace your own limitations yeah, I read this some years ago as I'm just, you know, getting into how do I faithfully engage this community? And another piece of framework is God doesn't call us, A, to change anybody. We can't even change ourselves. So the yeah. call is not to make somebody heterosexual. It's to make them like Christ, right? And look, matter of full disclosure, there's going to be sins I'm going to be struggling with until Christ calls me home. And I got to lean on God's Same. grace. <laughs> I got to lean on God's grace and his mercy day by day. How is that any different with our friends in that community? So, yeah. Well, Dr. Loritz, I, uh, I'm grateful that you took the time to be here. Uh, I think I'm thankful, thankful for your ministry. Thankful for you taking the time to pour into some student pastors through this podcast and, uh, we'll let you, we'll let you run for today, but really grateful for your time. Thank you. Enjoyed the chat. This has been another episode of the student ministry podcast by life. We'll see you next time, everybody.